Welcome to The Bipod, a podcast about all things bisexual. We cover topics like bisexual representation, our own experiences, and queer culture. I'm Chelsea, and my pronouns are they and them. I'm Christina, and my pronouns are she and her. We define bisexuality as experiencing attraction to people who share your gender identity and to those who don't. We welcome anyone who has any kind of relationship with or curiosity about queerness. For more info about the show, you can visit thebipod.com or find us on Instagram at thebipod. We don't know everything. At all. This podcast is one piece of the long history of bisexual and queer discourse. We're here to be part of the conversation. Let's get into it. Hi, Christina. Hey, Chelsea. We have a third with us today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Grace. Oh, my. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to the bipod. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. We're so happy to have you. So we are talking about public health today. Grace, could you, just to like get us all on the same page from the beginning here, could you explain what public health is for the uh, the listeners at home. And also for me. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I'm always happy to try to define what public health is, even though it, you know, usually involves a lot of flailing on my part. <laughs> so I'm Grace. My qualifications are that I got a master's in public health a couple years ago. and From Columbia. From Columbia. Now I work for the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, uh, whose uh, views and opinions are completely separate from my own. (laughs) Disclaimer. disclaimer. Not not here in any official capacity. Correct. A person that I went to college with who's qualified to talk about the subject. So the, you know, the very basic definition of public health is that it's the science of studying health at like a community or population level. And this definition is usually what it means is it's in contrast to like, it's in contrast to like a doctor who, who sees individuals and, and caters to their health needs, uh, et cetera, one person at a time. Public health doesn't, well, I want to say it doesn't treat people who are already sick, but that's not entirely true because, you know, there are health programs that people implement for for people who have certain health problems, and that that could be inclusive of of what we would call public health. But a lot of the focus of public health is on the prevention and study of how diseases transmit in populations. Um, this is not very sexy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, if it's not sexy, then. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> yeah. Saw the whole thing off. <laughs> but, you know, this is also a very philosophical question. What is public health? Uh, it's a very, very broad-ranging field. Like, people study cancer, health policy, LGBTQ health, um, and they do it in the government, in nonprofits, in academia, and you know, some people, like I was saying before, implement health programs uh, 
for communities. And then some people do things like study very fancy statistical methods to try and um, make our understanding of of the causality of disease better. Um, that doesn't that doesn't make it sound any more cool or interesting, I assume. But <laughs> so forgive me. We love statistical causality. Yeah, it's pretty punk rock if you ask me. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> so uh, I would bet that um, more people are thinking about public health than probably were prior, given, mm-hmm. um, as Christina would say, the pandemic Lovato. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> love it. Uh, I prefer pandemonium. It just really feels like the right vibe. I also like personal pan pizza, but anyways. <laughs> I like um, the Panera. <laughs> That's one of my recent favorites. Uh, soup in a bread bowl. <laughs> Are we not all soup in a bread bowl? This is a metaphor for public health. <laughs> That's the episode title. <laughs> oh, no. Um, so probably more people are thinking about public health than were prior. Um, probably more people have recently learned what that means. Um, but what what does it have to do with queer people specifically? Um, like, <laughs> why is this a thing that we should um, should care about? Yeah, it's like, a why really, should... A really, a so- I'm just throwing you a softball here. Thanks. Um, but you don't have to this answer this at all. in its entirety. <laughs> It's not at all complicated. It's very easy. Hang on. <laughs> no, it's like, why should people care about public health? It's like, om- this This almost used to be a more like, interesting question to answer pre- previous to the pandemic, right? Because you were like, it was like a thing that people didn't know or think about that much. Like for me, I kind of stumbled my way into the field, for instance, Um after looking into like going to nursing stuff like that but now it's this it's this big thing that a lot of people are thinking about um it went viral yeah. <laughs> public health went viral I'm there's sorry. your episode title i'll no. leave don't title it that i'll quit <laughs> you'll quit queer people should care about public health because everyone should care about public health right it's like the sickness that affects us all, the diseases that affect us all. Um, and even when there's not a global pandemic, you know, public health is studying the ways in which the next outbreak or pandemic could potentially be less devastating. Um, but also, you know, uh, related to queer health, bisexual health. Uh, this is a statement that sounds really obvious, but like marginalized people tend to have worse health outcomes. Right. And that's for a myriad of reasons. Um, But it's it's a question we're always trying to research and look into and fix as a field in public health, hopefully. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. Did I answer the question? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And we'll we'll, look this whole episode is sort of going to be why queer people should care about public health, but or why public health should care about queer people. Very important. (laughs) Thank you. That was a hard sentence to say. Um, yeah, Yeah. we, uh, we have some opinions about the CDC. Um, hope y'all ready for the hot takes. (laughs) (laughs) 
again, I want to reiterate that um, I am not here as an employee of the <laughs> city health department. Um, yes, I I have um, opinions. Yeah. Also, not as an employee of any health department anywhere. <laughs> Me as well. Yes. Good. Um, it is. Uh, it is a little bit wild, though. Like, um. Four years ago, if you had been like, Chelsea, do you have opinions about the CDC? I would have been like, no. <laughs> like, why? <laughs> and now, now I've got opinions. Now you've been on their website. <laughs> I have mm. been on their website. Love the CDC um, website. <laughs> I feel like it would give anyone opinions. Mm-hmm. I would agree. <laughs> yep. Uh, Grace, do you want to talk a little bit more about what you specifically do? I can, yeah. Um, It's not the most interesting thing in the world, but um, I work for the New York City Health Department in our Bureau of Hepatitis, HIV, and uh, Viral STIs. Very cool. Um, Most of what I do is related to working with uh, this centralized collection of data that we have on HIV, uh, HIV-related programs that run in the city that are uh, funded by the government through Ryan White, which is a um, like a centralized funding source for HIV that's distributed throughout the country, basically. Um, so all of our Ryan White programs are basically obligated to use this big centralized data collection system and put all their stuff about their clients and their programs into there. So what I do is I work with that data a lot and I do various things with that. Like sometimes the HIV Planning Council of New York asks us questions and then we try to answer them with the data that we have. Um, that was the thing I did recently. And then there, I work in the research and evaluation unit of, of one of our programs. So there's a wide range of things that we do from like program evaluation of specific programs. And we have all these, New York City is like a very well-funded, very robust relatively speaking, uh, Ryan White program. So we have many different program categories from like substance use, harm reduction to uh, housing programs, trying to provide housing for people living with HIV. I basically do research into things that affect people living with HIV in New York City. Uh, I I haven't really done much program evaluation, actually. It's mostly been like research questions and data requests, stuff like that. Very cool. And one of my passion projects as part of as as part of work kind of I've like been trying to work it into my my tasks and standards or whatever is I I think a lot about like HIV stigma and the way that affects mm-hmm. programs and people and the ways we can reduce it and uh let it not be a thing that affects people's health. Mm. And the ways that that stigma sort of intersects with other stigmas too, like there's there's not, you know, a lot of it's it's really hard to sort of tease out the difference in stigmas and oppressions, right? Because they're all kind of interrelated. So there's also like racism and transphobia, and those intersect with HIV stigma in ways. And so I'm also interested in in trying to study that. I like would love to hear more about that um i'm i've been trying i'm trying to formulate a like specific question um maybe how you started thinking about that um or you know what is reducing stigma around um 
what does that look like in public health? That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) We like to ask really like easy, straightforward, multiple choice questions on this podcast all the time. Yeah, (laughs) me too. I'm sweating. (laughs) Um, Well, how did I get interested in that? I don't exactly remember. So I did an internship with the health department and I just sort of offhandedly mentioned that this was something that I think about because for me, one of the reasons I got interested in in public health is because I'm also very interested in the way that like structural level inequality and oppressions affect health, mm-hmm. um, which is a very a very broad thing. You know, there's a number of things that fall under that, like experiences of oppression, things like income inequality, and how those affect health. Um, but one of the things that one of the things I was interested in is like, how does this experience of being stigmatized or being oppressed sort of relate to people's health or their experience of healthcare? And I had mentioned this to someone who I was doing an internship with at the health department. And she was like, oh, we're actually doing a project related to this. We got like this grant. And so do you want to be a part of it? So I got involved in this like coalition. Um, that was trying to collect data from HIV agencies uh, on what they thought stigma looked like, um, what maybe what were the best ways that they thought uh, to, were good to reduce it. Because public health, I mean, like any field, like any state-run program or field in the history of, you know, colonialism and oppression has has often suffered from this problem where people try to come in and be like, okay, we have, we know how to make you more healthy. So why don't you just do what we say? Mm. So I'm also very interested in this idea of like community-based research where you're actually involving people from the community um, who are serving the community and asking them what they think the best way to approach a problem is, Um, which Mm. seems really obvious now, but like this is a, a relatively new idea that people are actually grokking in public health. Um, so so what we did was, and we didn't actually talk to any clients, but we were interested in collecting ideas from people who like run the programs in the community on what they thought stigma looked like, what were the best ways to reduce it, et cetera. That was, yeah, that was how I originally sort of got into this um, at the health department. And now we're trying to, our grant ran out. So like now we're trying to continue the project. We're applying to another grant. There was another group that I joined that did like a week long training on stigma and intersectionality. And now we're we're trying to figure out what we're gonna do next and how we can make this like a priority for leadership in our bureau because you know, they're always like, Oh yeah, that's interesting. You should do that. But then it's hard for people to find the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like that might um, segue really well into getting into, um, you know, some questions or discussion about um, the specifics of queer people in public health um, and, you know, what kind of like the special interests or um, specific concerns, patterns, et cetera, um, that affect folks in the queer community. Um, That's not really a question. That's just like a menu of topics um but is there like an entry point that you uh want to jump in at anywhere in there 
Um, well, that you weren't directing that question to me. Um, <laughs> but um, on the CDC website, oh, um, yes. <laughs> when you're looking at um, public health in the LGBTQ section, um, actually, mm-hmm. I think it just says LGBT. Anyway, <laughs> I'm sure when you're looking in the section about people who aren't heterosexual, um, it's the most robust section is all devoted to um, men who have sex with men, but particularly HIV and AIDS. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yes. Which is um, important. And also, not the um, not the only public health issue faced by uh, queer people. Yes, and I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, like how um, maybe maybe why that is that that's a or if not why like how that maybe fits into some of the chal- the the issues that public health. Um, has <laughs> as a field the issues that public health has yes no i mean i think yeah historically a lot of the focus on on the health of gay people queer people has been focused on well hiv is like the big one right and you know the reason that there is a lot of focus on hiv for sure is because of really good activism that people did you know, HIV was this huge problem, but basically we wanted to completely ignore it. And and some really amazing people said, like, no, we're not going to ignore this. But but yeah, I think that a lot of the focus for for gay health has been on like, oh, here are the STIs that you can get if you're gay. Here's like what you should do for your sexual health. And yeah, sexual health is important. Um, but it's definitely not the be all end all of the the queer experience. Um, you know, there's a myriad of things that affect queer people's health, like uh, disparities in in mental health. I think have been a thing that people have been highlighting recently, particularly for the bisexual community, or I don't know, the bisexual community. I don't know why <laughs> I said that. Um, I don't know if I've ever said that before in my life, like the bisexual <laughs> community. Anyways, or the bi plus, bi plus community. I think bi plus is like a thing that mm-hmm. people are yeah, saying Yeah, for like now. all multi-attracted people. That was one of Christina and I's early conversations that kind of led to the creation of this podcast is we were talking about like the fact that bisexual people have like higher rates of mental illness or de- I think we're talking I think it was specifically depression, specifically depression yeah yeah we're talking about higher rates of depression um yeah. than other populations and in that conversation we're talking about basically because the whole world tells us that we um that we don't exist and that like our experiences are invalid yeah there's definitely the idea of like you know the there's this whole thing there's this big thing big thing it's not really like there's this theory that a lot of people start with when studying queer health which is called the minority stress theory which was uh posited by Elon Meyer 
and I totally knew his name first thing and didn't have to look it up. Um, <laughs> which is the idea that uh, the stress that people are under due to being a sexual or gender minority, which is a term that people have used in academic public health that is, you know, it has its own problems. But basically, the stress that they're under is something that leads to worse health outcomes for a variety of reasons. Um, and I think there's definitely something to be said for the fact that bisexual or bi plus people uh, sort of experience it in two different lanes, like both in the queer community, and then also in the straight community. And so that kind of the idea is that, you know, that extra level of, of double stress or what have you, can lead to worse health outcomes, worse worse mental health outcomes. Um, but again, like this is something that is still, in, in some ways, it's still very much a hypothesis. Like these are not questions that we put money into studying. And so we don't know, like, do bisexual people have worse mental health because they're, uh, because of these double oppressions? Or do people with worse mental health tend to identify as bisexual yeah. chicken or you know, like <laughs> there's not exactly yeah. like people who are maybe people who are sad the depression made you bisexual think about their not sexuality the other way more. around <laughs> yeah. exactly exactly you're just like i'm depressed i guess i'll have sex with whoever huh. i hope this doesn't awaken something in me <laughs> exactly um, and that's something when I was complaining, <laughs> when I was complaining about the CTC website in preparation for this episode, um, the, they talk a lot about, um, drug and alcohol use, which again, important thing for us to mm -hmm. talk, be talking about. Um, but it, it felt very like LGBTQ, I, I'm just gonna say queer people. That's not what the CDC website that says, but, uh, queer people use drugs and alcohol because homophobia. Right, which like maybe there's maybe there's some truth to that, but but that's that's probably not like the whole story. Yeah. Right. So these these complicated questions of like how do we get at causality and what are what are the real reasons people are doing things and what are the real reasons that people have worth worse health outcomes. I mean they're very complicated questions and they're hard to study and it's hard to figure out what causes what um this is why like this is why people's attention tends to drift away when you really get into public health and what public health is and what we should be studying because it's really really hard to come up with to even like come up with the question and and let alone finding the data set that's going to answer your question like if you want to ask a question like, what effects does income inequality have on health? Well, there's a million and one reasons that you have to pick apart as to as to why that is. You know, there's lower income, you know, lack of health insurance um, or the the st stress that comes from not having enough money, living to paycheck to paycheck. These questions are very complicated and hard to study and it's hard to find funding. So this is the perpetual problem that plagues public health. Wow, that was extremely <laughs> alliterative. Um, now there's the episode title. <laughs> I don't know if I could even say that again. 
Yeah, nobody wants to throw money at the question, why are bisexuals depressed? Yeah, as far as I know, there's not that many people who are chomping at the bit. One day, the bipod will uh, <laughs> become a public just- health organization. <laughs> that was, I, that's not what I was going to say. Um, we'll just be out here, you know, I don't know, funding grants with all of the dollars that mm-hmm. we will be bringing in from yeah. our very well, and- widely applicable, not at all niche <laughs> not at all. podcast. Mm-hmm. General audiences. <laughs> One of the reasons, too, why it's so especially hard to answer questions about LGBT populations, as the CDC calls it, is that, you know, people weren't collecting. There's all these, like, big national health surveys and stuff and whatnot, um, which for a long time didn't collect any information on people's sexuality or gender identity. So to to answer questions, to go back historically and look at things is really hard. Because there's basically just not a lot of historical data. And this is a problem that people are trying to correct. But obviously the effects of it are not Mm. immediate. And not something you can immediately necessarily do something with. I suppose you also face the issue of like um, queerness and people's identification with it is fluid. And so even if we were collecting that data... Uh, at the time that you, you know, filled mm-hmm. out the paperwork, you might have identified one way and now identifying a different way. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. That's complicated. Mm-hmm. It sure is. Um, Chelsea, do you want to share about your experience on the CDC website that has radicalized you against them? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. So as I already mentioned, most of the resources in the LGBT section it just it sounds so incomplete without the q on the end i just anyway Mm -hmm. most of the resources as mentioned are focused on um men and hiv aids um but there was a section related to women um for lesbians and bisexuals and there was like a link in their um underdesigned section of the website that said (laughs) something about like health recommendations or health concerns or you know something for women who have sex with women and I was like cool I'm like interested in what this resource has to say um love that they just went with like a inclusive like women who have sex with women um and then I went And I clicked on the link and it was broken. (laughs) It went to nothing. (laughs) Oh, man. What am I to do? Nothing. Yeah. And I just. Also, like, on on the, if I'm remembering correctly, on, like, the men who have sex with men page, and obviously, like, they include the T, but I didn't really see any mention of, like, People who are there's a a a separate trans section which has like four links. Okay, okay. Um, So for the men who have sex with men page, there were like all these stock photos (laughs) of men, like cis men touching each other, like like hugging and stuff, and it was kind of nice. It was sweet. And then on the women who have sex with women page, there was like 
two photos. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, it's mostly like that's why I was like on the undersigned <laughs> like stage. Um, it's mostly just links. It's just text on a page, basically. And the links don't work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So that might be a, a good opportunity to ask you: um, Are there any uh, public health resources for queer folks that you find to be, uh, you know, marginally more useful than that? <laughs> <laughs> Where do you know anywhere where the links were? <laughs> That's a great question. Like, there isn't one good centralized source of data, and it also just yeah. really depends on what you're looking for, right? I mean, there's some big nonprofits that do stuff. I'm a little bit disillusioned right. on some of them. Um, there's the Williams Institute at UCLA. That's where Elon Meyer works, the guy who sort of studies minority stress theory. Um, and that has sort of a lot of factoids and fact sheets, if you're interested. There's the Fenway Institute. Um, we can also include them in the show notes later if that is is easier. Yeah, definitely. I'm definitely happy to provide resources. With links that work. Uh, links that work i mean that's the dream (laughs) right no but like you know women's health has been historically underfunded and lgbt health has been historically underfunded so queer women's health Mm -hmm. you get the double win venn diagram of underfunding (laughs) yeah yes yep yeah uh not to make this an episode of complaining about the CDC website. <laughs> Go ahead, but please. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> it also, um, it is uh, very gendered. <laughs> uh, and so most of the resources are split between men and women. And they're set up with the assumption, it reads primarily like the assumption is that the uh that they're talking about cis people and then mm-hmm. there's a transgender persons section i don't know where i don't know where anyone got the idea that like persons was a thing that we should say in academia but i would really <laughs> like it to die forever like what's wrong with saying people i don't understand yeah, it's, um, i think people are trying to be like formal and inclusive but it just sounds so weird yeah like, I have read one and a half linguistics books, and I cannot answer that question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I really don't know. Yeah, so we don't love that. Um, And there is not there is not any other easily accessible information about like non-binary people or like. Um, it's, I had a, I think I had some point that I wanted to make here, but I, now I'm just mad at the CDC. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the, the health and just the idea of non-binary people in general is, is just barely nascent in, or it's not that people aren't thinking about it, but there there haven't been a lot of programs, resources, time, et cetera, put into it with good output 
in in public health yeah definitely so something that we um have touched on a little bit uh is that queer health and how it fits into public health is connected to a lot of different things um and we would love to talk a little bit about some of the like structural issues that um are public health hazards <laughs> hazards public health hazards um geez well yeah so something i've talked about is like income inequality and obviously this is something that disproportionately affects lgbtq slash queer populations because you know historically it's been difficult for people to get employed in certain places and certain fields, many, most, uh, if they are queer. Um, I don't know. There's just so many things. It's like structural, like centralized or national, like, or, or standards for sex education in schools Mm. is, is something that, you know, if we could, give people information about their sexualities and their bodies, including everyone, that would be great. And that's kind of, I guess that's what I would consider a structural level uh, problem. Yeah. Yeah. Mass incarceration. It's a problem for all, all marginalized communities. And it's something that is, you know, both ethically horrific and has uh effects on the health of populations abolition a public health strategy Mm -hmm. uh yes (laughs) absolutely you know the stress of of police presence is absolutely a thing that that should be obviously it should be gotten rid of you know we should be studying and thinking about these things these are things that it is very hard to get people to study and think about and give money to but it's absolutely a public health thing Mm -hmm. i feel very strongly about this there are some people doing really great work on this, though. I don't want to. I don't want to say that there aren't. Um, there is. There's some public health people that I like follow on Twitter or admire. Like Justin Feldman at Harvard is doing some good work. Re social epidemia. There's this whole field called social epidemiology that is supposed to be studying the social and structural issues that affect people's health. I took one class on it in my MPH program and it was certainly not a required class. I think there was maybe like a required two or three weeks of talking about it for the degree. There's these things called social determinants of health is like the big buzzword slash thing. And people are paying a lot more attention to it now than they were before, but it's, you know, still, still a problem. Yeah. And it's interesting because I feel like in like a mainstream like non-public health professional conversation um i feel like a lot of people are maybe thinking about like physical the the physical health of individuals um and maybe the like the mental health of individuals but thinking about um like you mentioned specifically the stress that police presence causes like maybe you know somebody is aware that that is like a thing but like we don't talk about it in a public health sort of context we talk about it in maybe like a different kind of bucket. Um, and so it's so helpful to kind of zoom out and think about um, how all of these things, for lack of a better word, um, are connected and how they compound um, and how there are 
uh, solutions and issues and resources across disciplines, across areas of study and of work um, that if pulled together, <laughs> um, you know, could address these things. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that was very well put. Thank you. Um, so welcome. Doing, you're doing my job <laughs> for me here. Now, there's so much that public health can learn from fields like sociology and et cetera that I think is, again, this is like becoming a thing that people are thinking about and doing more, but there's not nearly enough of it. I have a quote from you here <laughs> uh, from our most recent conversation, um, which is that capitalism is a public health hazard. Uh, do you care to elaborate or contextualize? <laughs> I will not be taking any follow-up questions. (laughs) No, and you know, it's like... You can also (laughs) deny that you ever said that because it's just me saying that you said that. No. (laughs) It's so both obvious and complex that it's like, where do you even begin? Things like police presence are obviously related to the distribution and enforcement of of power structures that happen under capitalism under colonialism um and most of them are bad and most of them have bad effects on people's health so you know capitalism is bad for people's health that's how causality works as i understand it (laughs) (laughs) you know like the increased globalization has definitely played a part in in this pandemic yeah you know, previously something that originated in a different country wouldn't necessarily have as much of an impact, but but now in the world we live in, it, it spread quite easily across the globe. And that, you know, has to do with in- industrialization, globalization, um, which are products of... And the fact that um, vaccine patents... Oh my God. Like, like evil... <laughs> Like evil, not evil. distributing vaccines globally in a pandemic is like yeah the the incentivization of individual gain and individualistic mindsets are at just completely at odds with the idea of what I think public health should be, mm. which is about collectivism and community and caring. God, I'm being so alliterative. Today. <laughs> And I don't know why. <laughs> I guess when I get excited about things, <laughs> it just happens to me. <laughs> yeah, just drugs too. Vaccines and drugs being products of of corporations who are allowed to kind of do whatever they want is at odds with public health. Ugh. I was just thinking about that in the context of birth control yesterday. Um, I was reading an article about... Um, like the fight for birth control access, which is obviously something that I feel very passionate about. But like also I feel very, um, I don't know what the right word is, but like I don't take my birth control pill every morning thinking like, wow, the person who invented this really thinks about my long-term health and all of the th- ways that it could affect me. Um, <laughs> and just like, I, it's just not true. Um, and I just like think about that weird, um, it's not a duality, but it's a, it's a rock in a hard place spot to be because I feel like, um, you know, we're often advocating for these things, these medicines, these services, these resources um, that for one reason or another um, 
are maybe not not the perfect solution or like not something that um that I that we feel like super or that I feel super uh, safe and passionate about but it's like I don't have another option that was not that um clear I don't know if that okay. makes sense so here, what I think I, what I understood from what you were saying is the complexity of like you want everyone to have access to birth control and also our current birth control means are an imperfect system yes um an imperfect tool which applies to like a lot of different things and so you both want people to have access you want people to have equal access and also the thing that you're trying to get them access to is is imperfect yes and so how do you balance like everyone should have this thing and also we could actually be doing this thing better thank you chelsea (laughs) (laughs) very good articulation thanks that's interesting now i'm thinking about that yeah Uh, again just capitalism profit motives Mm -hmm. yeah it does not necessarily it definitely does not lead to <laughs> good health outcomes for all people over time. Yeah. Um, this conversation has really brought up a lot of, um, it's made me think a lot about the themes of restorative culture practices, which are something, um, which is something that's important to me. Um, and also thinking about, um, thinking about how when we get when we provide resources and support to the most marginalized people everyone benefits from that um i think it was alicia garza who said when black people get free everybody gets free um and that idea of um when you instead of addressing the what maybe seems like the 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 i don't know the lowest hanging fruit um when you actually address the people who are most being impacted by an issue um everyone benefits from that and that feels very connected to this public health conversation mm. like mm-hmm. if we address incarceration like that makes people healthier um and that's maybe not the that in and of itself you're probably not ending incarceration just because of health outcomes but as a result of ending incarceration health outcomes improve Mm. yes or just if you're just talking about covid for instance we know that covid disproportionately affects people along racial lines right so if you focus on getting the people who are the most affected healthy, there is less COVID in the community and everyone is safer. Like this is something that should seem really obvious. And yet mm-hmm. <laughs> we tend to try and throw the same interventions at everyone or, or focus on trying to shift the burden onto people individually to take care of their own health instead of taking care of everybody's health like we should be doing. But yeah, getting people healthier makes us all healthier it's just (laughs) oh which is one of those we've said this a couple of times but it's like so obvious and yet also you have to like say it 
You have to keep saying it. And you feel like a broken record. And again, this is why public health is not sexy. You just keep saying the same boring answers over and over again. Or when people are like, what about this issue? I feel like so often my answer is, I don't know. We don't know. <laughs> you know, especially in early days of COVID and, and everything. There, But it's so tempting to look at the data and and try and draw conclusions and try to be like oh well this and this and this i don't know now i'm just sort of blabbering on and on but it's often not the most exciting answer but the answer is we don't really know what's happening but here's how we think we can best take care of ourselves which is not what people want to hear i love how invested you are in public health being sexy well you know <laughs> i just want people to care well, and I think like that's um, people like simple answers, like yes, a simple, exactly. straightforward answer. Very sexy um, <laughs> in the public imagination. Yeah. Put it in a one slide. Yeah. Uh, infographic on Instagram. We love it. Yeah. Um, and so that really goes counter to the idea of like, you need a lot of data and time and money and research to like untangle complicated issues. And sometimes the answer is, we don't know. And sometimes the answer is this simple thing that seems obvious, but isn't that interesting. Like, or it's a thing that is simple, but not easy. Like capitalism is bad for your health. Like that's <laughs> simple, but not easy to address. Like, I also think there's this perspective from, for instance, like the CDC and others who are in a leadership capacity that like we shouldn't necessarily express that we have uncertainty because then it makes people more uncertain and becomes sort of this like self-fulfilling feedback loop of, well, we can't tell people that we don't know things, but then people end up finding out that you don't know things and so they trust you less. <laughs> yeah. It's like, come on, I feel like we can we can live with a little bit of uncertainty and you can sort of trust people instead of, again, that perspective of like, we're coming in and we're going to tell you how it's going to be. Don't worry, I have all the answers. Yeah, which connects up with what you were saying about the idea of talking to people who are actually affected by an issue instead of enforcing some kind of top-down solution. Like, yeah, it's simpler to just be like, we've got the answers, we know what to do, uh, just do what we say instead of actually being in dialogue and nuance and saying like, actually, maybe someone else knows better what we should do here. Yeah. So actually, there's this whole field of public health that is kind of one of my like pet interests called implementation science, um, which is basically the idea that what, you know, there's people come up with answers to health questions or interventions or things that are going to make people's health better, but then they just get like published as an academic article and either it takes years or it doesn't even happen at all that they ever get used. So implementation science is a reaction to that. And it's basically how can we study how interventions or health programs get implemented? And how can we make that better? And how can we make it happen faster? And I feel like one of the 
you know, there's a lot of things in this field, but a, a big part of it, I feel like the conclusion that people have come to is that like context matters and the way that you implement something in one community is not going to look the same as when you implement it in another community and it shouldn't necessarily. Which again, it's one of those things that like, it seems obvious, but <laughs> it is not always people want to say, okay, oh, well, this is how we solve this problem. Let's just like shoot it out non-discriminately to a bunch of people and hope. But, you know, maybe that intervention was only studied in certain populations. Maybe it was only studied in straight people or maybe it was only studied for white people and so it's not necessarily going to solve the problem in the same way and so how can you adapt interventions or advocate for the way that we study these questions to be inclusive science <laughs> science the and the colonial <laughs> insistence that one size fits all um Ugh. yeah Man, public health, very radical. I mean, as a, maybe not yeah. as a, uh, not, not in, in practice but like, at the moment. It is, it is um, connected. It is like, I'm feeling very radicalized by public health right now. Good. Good. <laughs> it's not, I, I don't want to advertise it as a field, as an extremely radical thing because <laughs> it's not necessarily no, but, but the, my the perspective issue, on it like, is the issues of public health yeah. are like I agree. Yeah. And like there's like a radical potential. Yes. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Like in a in a new world where uh radical change has been made and people are safer and abolition is achieved, public health uh potentially moves closer to the center of, you know, implemented community care and all of those things. I hope so. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you want to get into? Or anything else you want to say? Um, let's see. I can't think of any good concluding thoughts necessarily. We got into capitalism, which is always what I want to get into. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think our last maybe like wrap-up question was uh is there anything that people who are not public health professionals um can do can do <laughs> if they're also feeling radicalized by this conversation about public health yeah um what should we be thinking about or advocating for yeah this is a hard this is a hard question because like we said there's so many there's so many structural issues that have to do with public health. You know, you can advocate against corporations wielding unchecked power on drug patents and vaccines. You know, there's universal health care, which is a thing that affects everyone. Um, advocating for good sex education in your community or in the nation. Um, just resisting the urge to sort of blame individuals or shift the burden onto individuals for public health issues and instead placing the blame on like leadership that has failed us. There's like, I've seen so much of it with COVID is people want to put it on, on like bad actors of who are, you know, these bad kids who are spreading the COVID. <laughs> um, 
instead of being angry that like we don't have adequate testing and we don't have adequate interventions and we don't have adequate leadership to guide us Mm -hmm. yeah oh you're like oh these people aren't getting vaccinated well what what have we done to really get into that and try and spread vaccines because we know that like people who have mistrust in the system uh historically have been resistant to getting vaccines from the system so like what can we be doing to address that instead of being like oh people in red states aren't getting vaccinated murmur they're the reason that covid is happening back to that causality question (laughs) yeah exactly exactly so just trying to resist that urge i think is something that I don't want to shift the burden on the individuals to have to do all of this, but I wish that we could, we could take a step back from that a little bit and try to push more on um, what we can be doing, what the people in power can be doing Mm -hmm. to try and deal with this problem. Yeah. Empathy and complexity. Yes. Yes. Mm. Wonderful. And universal healthcare for everyone. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Do you want to uh, plug anything? I I don't know if you like want to be followed on the internet at all. Um, It's perfectly fine if you don't. But is there anything you want to uh, promote or tell the people about? I I'm perpetually asking myself that question. Do I want to be followed on the internet (laughs) at all? (laughs) No, I have a, I guess what you'd call a somewhat professional Twitter. I'm at Grace Maxson, M-A-C-K-S-O-N. Um, mostly I lurk and like tweets from social epidemiologists I like. Um, but yeah, you're welcome to follow me. And then they can pe- the people can find social epidemiologists to follow based on the tweets that you like. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> A great starting place. Right. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much for being here. This has been great uh, to have an expert. <laughs> oh, no. Don't call me an expert. <laughs> I hate being called an expert. I'm I could so say I have, I have expertise. You have qualifications. Okay. It's, it's been great to speak to somebody who is qualified. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Christine and I end every episode by saying goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> because bye. <laughs> I see. Um, you get it. see. And if you'd like, you're welcome to to say it with us. To join the party. <laughs> okay, I can try. Okay. Yeah. We usually just like make awkward eye contact until one of us starts to say it and then we jump in. So it's not okay. yeah. It, yeah, it's not scientific. There's no down or anything. No. 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 Oh, that would be too professional. To feel it. <laughs> yeah. It's vibes. Yeah. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> okay. okay. Well. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of The Bipod. You can follow us on Instagram at The Bipod. You can email us at thisisthebipod at gmail.com. You can find show notes and transcripts of our episodes on our website, thebipod.com. The show is hosted by Chelsea Bergen and Christina Brown. And this episode was edited and produced by Chelsea Bergen. Our theme song is Coming Home by Snowflake.